Hi, Wawa City Church family, Pastor Josh. Hey, just a quick note before uh, you listen to this podcast. I had mentioned during the service, but it didn't make the recording, that a lot of the material that begins uh, probably the first half of this message comes from a book by my pastor in college named James McDonald. He wrote a book called God Wrote a Book. And uh, a lot of the material there, you, if you want to read more, it's a really accessible book. You could get your hands on for, for fairly cheap on Amazon. Uh, but just wanted to, to let you know that that's where um, some of the illustrations and different things come from this week. Love you. And Doug will be available after the service, just right out in the lobby there, if you want to talk to him, learn about his ministry, about uh, maybe even his call to ministry. Just go spend some time with him after the service today. He'll be available. But that actually reminds me of one thing. Well, two things, actually, but one especially. Do you got your bulletin insert? Why don't you pull it out and turn over to the back page? Do you see on the back, there's a whole list of, of prayer requests on the back of your notes every week. And uh, we pray for a neighboring church every week. We pray for a missionary every week. And um, then there's a third request on there last week and this week. We've been looking for people to help uh, care for our missionaries. We, we support a handful of missionaries. And in, in terms of care, we'd like a, a group of people who'd be willing uh, to help care for them, to stay in contact with them, to re- relay their needs back to the greater church body, somebody they can count on to turn to. And um, it, it's a behind-the-scenes ministry where you can do a lot of great things. Um, we've been looking for people to fill that role for about a year. And we have yet to hear anybody step up and say, I'll do it. So would you? Why don't you think about it, pray about it, or pray that the Lord might raise up a group of people willing to do that. It'd be a rewarding thing, and we'd love to have you help in that way. Also, uh, as it relates to missions, um, we we told you about this last Sunday, but I'll tell you again today and for the next few weeks. uh, You know, we support an orphanage in India that for over 10 years now, we fully funded the boys who live there. And uh, the, the men and uh, the families that live with them have some pictures here. Here's the boys. And that orphanage you generously helped pay for and gave towards a little over a year ago. Over $50,000 to build that. Uh, at the time, 40 boys. This is uh, Gbit on the left and uh, Sobakar on uh, my left. I met them last year when I was in India. And they live at the orphanage. They've given their lives to serving these boys. And uh, they live there with them. And uh, they serve. They're the house parents there. So be praying for them. Um, and there's pictures of the boys eating. Uh, that's generally how they're just down the middle of the hallway in the orphanage on the floor. Uh, playing volleyball. Volleyball's big. And uh, praying and going to church together. And this is the picture I really wanted to show you that I showed you also last week. And we'll probably show you again next week. Um, there's a church that meets in the orphanage. And what we heard, we heard a word from Joab uh, a few weeks ago that... Hey, you know what would be really great is if we could have the funds to build a church building, a hall of praise, they call it, for the church to meet in. And the cost of that would be about $10,000. And it would be great to do that on the property of the orphanage. And and the reason for that is in India, when people go to worship uh, many false gods, they do so in in a place of worship, in a temple. And so to make the, the, uh, the church more credible in the eyes of their community, to have a, a physical place where they meet, not a temple, but a hall of praise, not a place where God dwells, but where people go to praise him, um, uh, that gives great credibility to them in their community and in their context. 
And so uh, he asked if we would consider funding that. And so we talked about it as a board in August and we went back to him. We said, well, hey, Joe, I have 10,000. What could you do for 15 or for 20 even? And he said, well, we could build a bigger church and more people could meet Jesus. And uh, we build a bigger church and instead of a metal roof, we could put a concrete roof on it and we could host conferences and things like that there. And so we're like, well, we're planning to commit uh, somehow, some way by faith that, that we're going to provide $10,000 to you to build this church. But we're also going to challenge our people to see if we could even do more. And so that's the challenge to you. And this isn't a compulsive thing. This isn't me holding your arm behind your back saying, you got to give to this. It's me saying, hey, here's a need. And uh, if the Lord's given to you and you want to be generous and give, give back in that way, be, cheerfully give, not under compulsion, but because you want to above and beyond your regular giving. This is an opportunity, and we're going to leave it open until, I think I said second Sunday, but I'm, I was confused because October starts really early or late in the week this year. So it'll be that third Sunday in October will be the last Sunday uh, we'll give towards this. And then we'll, the week after that, we'll announce what was given, and we'll send it off to India, and uh, they'll start building a facility here just uh, later this fall and winter. Won't that be exciting? And uh, so if you're interested in giving towards that, uh, you can just mark that gift, India Church. And um, we'll keep you posted, and you'll keep hearing about it from me over the next few weeks. But let's see what the Lord might do through us. Well, speaking of that, we've been um, introducing over the last few weeks a new mission statement and core values for our church. And our new mission statement is, have you memorized it yet? Anybody bold enough to try it? Nobody, huh? We'll figure it out, memorize it. Here it is. We are sent, I should call up the board members, we are sent to love people and to invite them to follow Jesus with us. Would you read that with me? We are sent to love people and invite them to follow Jesus with us. That's our mission. That's what God has laid out for us to do. And uh, we started unpacking that a few weeks ago. Go listen to it online if you missed the last couple weeks. And that describes what we're supposed to do. But then we also took time to discover our core values and, and rework those into meaningful statements that actually defined who we are. And so we started with the first one last week. Do you remember what it was? Number one, it's all about who? Jesus. It's all about Jesus. In other words, all that we do is about Jesus. Jesus is first. He's our senior pastor. We're here to serve, love, exalt, enjoy him. See, our core values define who we are, and uh, it, it motivates what we do. And when somebody comes to visit our church, whether you're a small group or uh, a worship service or a ministry of our church, you know what I want, to, I want them to walk away understanding and sensing is one of these core values. Maybe they walk away going, man, those people talk about Jesus all the time. All the time, that's all they do is talk about Jesus. Why? Because it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. This is his church. Number two, we're going to look at this one today. God wrote it all down. Do you believe that? He wrote it all down. Everything you and I need to live the Christian life, to be joyful, to, uh, to honor Jesus, God wrote it down for us. He revealed himself to us in his word. A third one, all people matter. We'll get to this one next Sunday. Every person from conception to the grave matters. Every person, no matter their race, no matter uh, what they've done or what's been done to them or where they're from or the color of their skin, they all matter because they all bear God's image. All people matter. And that means there is no one on the face of this planet that we wouldn't go to and invite them to follow Jesus with us and love them in the name of Jesus. Amen? No one. 
Number four, we all need friends. We all need friends. Our our God is a God of, of trinity, of relationship, Father, Son, and Spirit. And this inviting Jesus, inviting people to follow Jesus with us is a big deal. If you're new to the mission statement, it's a big deal to, to invite people with us. We're designed to live in community. And, and Jesus himself lives in friendship with the Father and with the Spirit. And if we're really going to image him, we've got to be in friendship. Oftentimes the people who say, I just don't feel connected. I don't, they haven't invested themselves both to have friends and to be a friend to people in the church. It takes both. And then finally, no sacred cows. No sacred cows. Jesus is sacred. The gospel is sacred. My opinions are not sacred. The color of the carpet is not sacred. The painting on the wall is not sacred. Who is? Jesus is, because it's all about him. And so we're saying we're going to hold everything else loosely. And if it means changing it so that uh, Jesus is more greatly honored, that the gospel is moved forward, that the church grows to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ, we go, I really like that, but I'm going to let it go. Because Jesus is who I'm holding on to is sacred. No sacred cows. Amen? Those are, that's who we are. Those are our core values. And today, we're going to look at number two. God wrote it all down. So what do we mean by that? Well, to put it simply, God wrote a book. He wrote a book. He wrote it all down. You know, our confidence as, as his people is in that book. It's in the Bible. Our authority is in that book. It's in the Bible. Our hope is in the Bible. Our power is in the Bible. The power to save is in God's word. Uh, the power when I preach doesn't come from any of my ideas. It comes all from God's word. It's God's very word revealed to us. Aren't you glad that our God isn't a God who hides himself, but he writes to us and reveals to us who he is? That you can know the God and creator of the universe, of your very soul. He loves you so much. He wrote a book. God wrote it all down, everything you need to know. We're going to unpack that today. And really, this could be a series that could take us up to Christmas, but we're going to try to cover a whole bunch of it in one message. Are you ready? Oh, we're going to need to pray for that to happen. So would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, thanks for Jesus, and uh, I thank you for your word. Um, Jesus, your word is truth. And uh, might you uh, convict our hearts of that, remind our hearts of that today. Um, I thank you for the privilege you give me to teach your word and the things you've taught me and continue to teach me from it. I pray that would never end for my entire life, that I would always grow to know you more, learning continually, Jesus, about who you are, and then applying it to my life. Father, thanks for the Holy Spirit and the gift you give us to him and a helper. I thank you that you forgive me and that that he works in me to change me through the power of your word. I pray this morning against the enemy. He would twist your word. He would cause us not to regard it highly, uh, not to study it, not to believe it, uh, cause doubt in our hearts and in our minds. Might instead today you give us confidence in your word, uh, to trust you, to believe it. And uh, I pray all this in the strong name of our Savior, Jesus. Got our time now. Amen. Friends, God wrote it all down. Do you believe that? He wrote it all down. Do you got your Bible? Who's got their Bible with them? Even if you got a tablet, hold it up. You got it? You got a copy of it? God wrote it all down for you. He wrote it all down. We're to believe his word. We believe it as a church. We believe it to the extent that we made it our middle name as a church. Obviously, Community Bible Church, right? It's right in our name. It's who we are. 
And, you know, I thought it might be good for us just as we begin to read together our statement of faith and what it is we believe about God's word. It's good for us to confess things that we believe and to say it aloud with our lips. So it's going to be on the screen. And if you don't see it on the screen, it's going to be on your insert. But let's read this together. Would you join me? We believe this. We believe that God has spoken in the scriptures, both Old and New Testaments, through the words of human authors. As the verbally inspired word of God, the Bible is without error in the original writings. The complete revelation of his will for salvation and the ultimate authority by which every realm of human knowledge and endeavor should be judged. Therefore, it is to be believed in all that it teaches, obeyed in all that it requires, and trusted in all that it promises. Amen? Do you believe that? I believe that. We believe that as a church. That's who we are. Praise Jesus that we get to be part of a church and part of a denomination and fellowship of churches with the Evangelical Free Church that believe God's word. You know, sadly, far too many churches and far too many denominations today have strayed from the conviction that the truth and the truth that God's word is authoritative. But God's word is an error and it's to be trusted. Praise the Lord that we're a church that believes and teaches God's word. It's a great spot for an amen. Praise the Lord that we're part of a church that believes and teaches God's word. Amen. Amen. And listen, that's not an arrogant statement saying that we've got it all figured out. Nobody else does. Trust me. uh, Jesus looks at our church and sees a myriad of things that need fixing, (laughs) including the guy leading it. Right? There's a lot that we don't have figured out. And praise the Lord that there are many churches in our community and in our area that would agree wholeheartedly with this and teach and preach God's word. We're blessed to live in that type of community. All I'm saying is praise God that we're part of one of those churches. And we're part of a denomination in the Evangelical Free Church that's committed to God's word and teaches it. If you're new, maybe you've never even heard of the Evangelical Free Church that we're a part of. We don't always make a big deal about it, but that's our tribe. That's who we are. Evangelical means that we're sent to love people and invite them to follow Jesus with us. I can't even keep working that in. And and that we all hold, all all of the free churches hold to the same statement of faith. We all believe the same things, but we're all free too. And free means that each of us is free to govern ourselves, to uh, do ministry and sing the songs and uh, have the buildings that, that fit best in our context, in our culture. You know, some denominations will come in and say, oh, you got to do it this way. You got to do that. Gotta do that. Nope. The only time that they would ever step into our church as a denomination is one, if uh, we ask for help which there's many times we've asked for help on different things, and we're asking for some help on some things with a building uh, campaign right now. And two, if we quit doing what we're doing this morning, teaching and preaching and believing God's word. Those are the only two times they step in. Isn't that great? They they give us freedom to love and honor the Lord as best we can. Uh, But that's part of who we are. It's all about Jesus, and God wrote it all down. It all points to Jesus. And the teaching of the Bible trumps everything because it is God's very word. Now, if we believe last week that it is truly all about Jesus, then we need to believe this week that God wrote it all down and that it's our highest authority. Because if it's all about Jesus, then his words are the ones that matter, right? His words are the ones that matter. And his word is final. His word's final. 
Every point of doctrine and practice comes under the authority of Jesus and his word. So again, while today could be a long series of messages, uh, and maybe is even more, uh, in some ways, maybe more a lecture than a sermon, uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at three things, okay? Um, we're going to look at the reliability of, your wor- of God's word, of your Bible. Is it reliable? Can I trust it? Then we're going to look at um, the authority of God's word. Uh, why is it authoritative? Why is it powerful? And then we're going to end, and we're going to be moving quickly. You with me? We're gonna move, then we're going to look at the sufficiency of God's word, while it, why it is enough for us that God wrote it all down, everything we need uh, to know. Are you ready? If you're ready, say jump. Okay, I'm not going to jump, but we'll jump in. You ready? Reliable, reliability of Scripture. You know, the first thing we need to think about when we say God wrote it all down is, is what we have in God's Word really reliable? I mean, is it really God's Word? How do we know that? How can we trust that to be true? We say it, but saying it doesn't make it true. We read a statement of faith about it, but saying again, reading it doesn't make it true. What, what evidence is there that God's word really is his word? To, to many people in our culture, maybe even in your family, maybe even in this room, the Bible is an ancient book with little to no practical relevance for their lives. And if they have a Bible... If they have one, it simply sits and collects dust along with a bunch of other books they've never read. At least never read seriously. And the topic of the reliability, the doctrine of the reliability of Scripture is huge. To quote somebody famous, huge. It's big. Laugh with me a little bit, right? It's big. It's a huge thing. And again, today all I have time to do is barely scratch the surface on some of these things. But I want, I want, I want you to have confidence in God's sure word, this trustworthy word, okay? So I don't have a lot on the screen for you either, so you may want to write these down, and maybe uh, I can even email some of this out to you this week. Um, but first off, when we talk about evidence for the, the reliability of God, of the Bible being God's word, I would argue is its preeminence among all literature. Its preeminence among literature. The, first off, the Bible is, uh, is preeminent in its circulation, The Bible has been read by more people in more languages than any other book in human history. Do you know that the entire Bible is now translated into over 400, close to 500 different languages? No other book in the world is translated that much. And portions of it have been translated into nearly 2,500 languages. So complete copies in four to five hundred, nearly 2,500, and these stats are from from a few years ago, in partially into their language, like just the New Testament or just one of the Gospels. And many of these translations, many of these languages wouldn't even have a written version of their language if it wasn't for a translation of Scripture into that language. Did you know that? The Bible is preeminent in its circulation. Now, that alone doesn't prove that it's God, but it, it points us that direction as to why is that book the most known, the most circulated book. Number two, the Bible is preeminent in its influence. The Bible's influence on other books cannot be calculated. You simply cannot calculate it. There are more books written about the subject of Scripture than anything else in, in the world. There, and there's more books written about the person of Jesus than any other person in the world. It, it doesn't even come close. Uh, let alone the Bible is the single greatest influence of culture over the last 2,000 years. Did you know that? 
If you took the Bible out uh, of circulation for the last 200 years, uh, not only literature would be affected, but uh, music, art, architecture, uh, much of what we study and treasure wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the influence of the Bible. If you'd remove the Bible, you would destroy most of the major music, artwork, architecture of the past 2,000 years. It's preeminent in its influence, preeminent in its circulation, and it's preeminent among all religious writings. You say, hang on for a minute. The Bible may be a book, you know, a great religious book, but what about the Quran? What about the Book of Mormon? What about books on Eastern religions? Well, a guy by the name of Montiero Williams, not Montel Williams, but Montiero Williams, uh, it, he was a professor of Sanskrit at Oxford University, uh, Oxford, Uni- Oxford University during the latter half of the 19th century. He spent 42 years of his life studying Eastern religious books. And in comparing them to the Bible, here's what he said. He said, pile them, if you will, on the left side of your study table, but place your own holy Bible on the right side, all by itself, all alone. And with a wide gap between them, for there is a gulf between it and the so-called sacred books of the East. This is a guy who studied it for 40-some years of his life, which severs the one from the other utterly, hopelessly, and forever. A gulf that cannot be bridged by any science or religious thought. Friends, the Bible is preeminent. That's one external evidence in circulation and influence and among religious writings for, for I believe, evidence of it being the word of God, that God provides that preeminence to it. Uh, Number two, the evidence for scripture being God's word is its perseverance under attack. Uh, the, The Bible is so reliable. Did you know that? Uh, First, how about the attack of, of mankind? There's been no other book as banned and outlawed and burned as the Bible. There are countries today where it is illegal for you to own the copy of God's word that you have in your hand here. Illegal. Why? You can own the other books. Why not the Bible? Uh, So many have taken it upon themselves to attack God's word. Roman emperors, uh, communist dictators, college professors. But why the Bible? If you went to a large state school, I bet you wouldn't find uh, many professors, if any, attacking the Quran. They would respect it as a great religious work. But why the Bible? Do you know why? Because it's God's word. And there's an enemy who who seeks to destroy it and to destroy uh, people from trusting in Jesus Christ. Here's just one example. I could go on and on. But one example of how God's word has been preserved over time. Have you ever heard of this guy, Francois-Marie Arouet? Me neither. He had a pen name by the name, though, that I did recognize called uh, Voltaire. And he is a French philosopher and writer, and he was a brilliant atheist. He was brilliant. He wrote a number of tracts deriding the Bible, and he once made this very bold statement. He said, 100 years from today, the Bible will be forgotten, and it will be a forgotten book, no longer in circulation. He went on to say that the only place that you would find a Bible 100 years after he died uh, was in a museum. That it would become history. Well, instead... Voltaire became history. And his house, ironically, within 50 years of his death, was purchased by the Geneva Bible Society, and they used his printing press to print Bibles. (laughs) Isn't that great? 
And, uh, and for a hundred years after that, it served as uh, the depository for the French Bible Society. See, God's word endures forever. It's endured the attack of man, but also the attack of time. People say the Bible's too old. How do we know that what we have is what was originally written? How do we know it hasn't been corrupted over time? You ever wonder that? If you've wondered that, that's a really, really good question to ask. And a really valid one to ask. But sadly, many don't know the answer to it. Again, this is another topic we could talk about for weeks, but I'm going to try to walk through some of the highlights to answer this question. Um, first, I want to talk to you about two different terms, okay? Uh, first is manuscript. Manuscript is a handwritten copy, and then an autograph, which would be the original copy. Well, uh, we don't have any of the autographs anymore, the original copies of God's Word. We don't. They've been lost to history. However, we have a ton of handwritten manuscripts. They didn't have Kinko's back in the New Testament. You had to copy it by hand, right? And we have a ton of manuscripts. Now, in, in historical ancient literature, there, there's none, none of it that we have the original autographs of. It's not just the Bible. We don't have original autographs of Homer or Plato or Aristotle or any of these guys. Um, but what we do have is reliable copies. Now, so in light of that, when you're studying historical literature, the thing that makes it reliable is to examine the manuscripts and look for three things. Are you with me? You're going to look for three things in these ancient manuscripts. One, how many copies do we have? Two, how close in time to the original autograph is the earliest copy, Right? So if the, the original autograph was written in 1980 and our closest copy, then maybe we go back to 1999, 19 years within. See what I'm saying? How close is the, the earliest copy to the original? And then third, how many variations between uh, all of these copies are there over time as we move forward to the original copy or earliest copy? Well, let's start with the first. How many manuscripts are there? Uh, today, today of the New Testament, there are over 5,800 complete or fragmented Greek manuscripts. 5,800 in Greek. Add to that nearly 10,000 Latin manuscripts, copies, handwritten copies, right? And add to that um, another 9,300 manuscript, handwritten copies in various other languages in ancient Near Eastern literature. So today... There's over 25,000. When I was in college, there was only over 24,000. That number keeps growing as they find more. Over 25,000 handwritten manuscript copies, ancient copies of God's Word. Pretty good, right? You're like, okay, so how does that compare to other ancient literature? Well, if, if you go to college um, and, and you go to philosophy class or an ancient Near Eastern literature class at Purdue or Indiana or some big state school, and you go to them and you're studying Homer's Iliad, and you go to the, the professor and you say, I don't think we have a reliable copy of Homer. You know what he would do? He would laugh at you like, what are you talking about? It's such a reliable copy. That's exactly what he wrote. Well, how many copy, copies of Homer do you suppose we have? 25,000 of the New Testament, right? How many of Homer? 643. And he's in second place behind the New Testament. He's the, he's the, he has, we have the most manuscripts of Homer compared to the New Testament. The New Testament's the most, and then it's Homer with 643. New Testament, uh, way in the lead, routing it by 25,000. You're like, wow, that's impressive, right? Would you agree then we have a reliable copy? Well, then we got to ask that second question. Okay, we got a, a big number, but um, how close to the original is our earliest copy? 
Because that makes a difference, right? Even if we have 25,000 copies, if there's like a, a 1,500 years between that and the original, boy, there could be a lot of change. Well, in the New Testament, uh, some of the er- earliest manuscripts was, was finished um, in, in the late first century in terms of its original writing. And we have copies, original manuscripts, some fragments of that go back to within 30 to 40 years of that original writing. 30 to 40 years. So the lifetime of people who, who read the original writing, maybe even the lifetime of people who saw Jesus walking on the earth who could say, that's wrong, that's wrong, nope, that's right. Right? A few, few years. Uh, Homer, on the other hand, let me get this right so, so I say it right, um, is within, and I don't have it here, but, I, but it's, it's hundreds of years difference. Now, 25,000 versus 643, 30 to 40 years versus hundreds of years. Uh, we say Homer's valid. Would you say the New Testament's reliable? I think it's reliable. Now, the next question that we got to ask, that third one, is how many variants between some of those early copies and copies later in time and the copy you and I have? How many variants? That, that's a great, great question. I mean, as people copied, did they copy it accurately? How do we know we have an exact transmission of what God wrote down through these people? The scribes who copied the Bible took great care in transmitting the text. They counted the words as they wrote. They even counted the letters to make sure that nothing was omitted. Uh, They had proofreaders who checked their work against the master copy. Despite their care, however, there are a few small mistakes that have sometimes crept into the text inadvertently over the years. But these differences are differences in punctuation or spelling or misplaced words. And most of these variants are very easily accounted for. In fact, less than 1% of the words in the New Testament are seriously debated because we have so much evidence going back in time. And none of these affects any doctrine of our faith. As some respected New Testament scholars declared, not one fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith rests on a disputed reading. It's really amazing the way God has preserved his word. That only happens because God has preserved it. Uh, A guy by the name of Sir Frederick Kenyon, he's one of the uh, greatest authorities in the field of New Testament criticism, said it cannot be too strongly asserted that in substance the text of the Bible is certain. Especially this is the case with the New Testament. The number of manuscripts in the New Testament, early translations from it, and quotations from it, and the oldest writers of the church is so large, it's practically certain that the true reading of every doubtful passage is preserved in one or another of these ancient authorities. This can be said of no other book in the world. Why? Because God, I would submit to you, because God has preserved it over time. He wrote it all down, and he wasn't going to let it fade away. The word, uh, man will fade away like we read, right? Like grass we wither, but the word of God endures how long? To quote squints, forever. Forever. Unending is God's word. Um. So as we go on, you're like, okay, so that's the New Testament. What about the Old Testament? Uh, Since the Old Testament was completed about 400 years before Jesus, the early manuscripts, it it was troubling here for a while because the earliest manuscripts we had of the Old Testament uh, were around 900 A.D., a gap of 1,300 years. You're like, okay, the New Testament's reliable, but what about the Old Testament? 
Well, as, uh, as textual criticism and liberal scholars emerged uh, 100, 150 years ago, um, there were all kinds of charges. Surely, oh, that's just made up. That's not true. There must have been all kinds of changes with that huge of a gap, right? 900 years, 1,300 years. Um, but then in 1947, there was a little shepherd boy around the Dead Sea who went walking around. And he picked up some rocks like little boys do and started throwing them. And he threw them into the cave. And he threw them into the cave. And then finally one day he threw one in. And what happened? Crash! Something broke in there. It sounded like a plate of glass. And uh, he, he goes in, finds uh, this earthen vessel that had contained copies of ancient literature. And among all these copies uh, were many copies of the Bible. And, and we find out that, that many of them, we, have, we even found a complete copy of Isaiah. These are called the Dead Sea Scrolls. They went through all the caves. Archaeologists did, dug all these out. And many of the copies of manuscripts that, that this little boy found uh, were copies of the Old Testament. They found a copy of Isaiah that was 1,000 years older than the previous oldest manuscript. Full copy of Isaiah that was 1,000 years older than the earliest one they had to that date. Okay, here we go. Now it's on, right? We're going to find out, did it change in a thousand years? I, I can't even conceive of a thousand years in my little pea-sized brain, right? And my short life. A thousand years is a long time. Has it changed? Here's the changes that they found. Uh, they looked at, just for example, I'll, I'll give you one example. Chapter uh, 53 of Isaiah contains 166 words in Hebrew. There were only 17 letters in question. Ten of those letters were just a matter of spelling. Just a matter of spelling. So you can kind of take those off, which really doesn't affect the sense at all. Four more of those 17 letters were minor stylistic changes, such as conjunctions and pushing words together. The remaining three letters composed the word light from verse 11 of Isaiah chapter 53. And it doesn't affect the meaning greatly. And in fact, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation, they actually use that in the Septuagint. 166 words, uh, 17 letters, <laughs> um, only three of those really matter. One word difference over a thousand years. Have you ever played telephone? <laughs> Imagine playing it for a thousand years. There would be a lot of changes. That's incredible. Loved ones, I could go on and on and on with the reliability we have of God's word, that it is the copy it is reliable. It's what God said. There's no reason to doubt it. And you may not be able to articulate it, but don't let that let you cower away in fear of somebody who comes after it. Uh, there's all kinds of evidence of the reliability. There's also proof from archaeology. I got to keep moving. We got a lot to cover. Proof from archaeology. Now, one, one of the conflicts, especially when I was at Iowa State, I took a, a philosophy class, uh, and my professor, I remember him uh, complaining about things about, oh, the Bible, there's no proof for that in archaeology, what little there is, you know. Uh, the reality is we don't have yet uh, archaeological proof of guys like Abraham, Isaac, or Isaac, uh, Jacob, some of them, but um, then they'd go on and say, well, here's the example I remember him using. What about the Hittites? You read about the Hittites in the Old Testament? The Hittites were a, a group of people mentioned, I think, around 40 to 50 times in the Old Testament, and um, approximately 50 times. And for years, you could go to a campus, and I heard a professor use this argument. And um, some professor would stand up in class and say to young people, the Hittites, what a joke. There were no Hittites. 
Archaeologists have been digging there for years, and those people never existed. That's a fabrication of the Bible. Until not long ago, they found evidence of the Hittites. Oops. (laughs) Oops. I missed that one, didn't I? Or how about arguments that Moses didn't really write the Pentateuch? Uh, Yeah, Moses, they didn't even have written language back then. You know, 1400 B.C., get real, come on. They they claimed the priesthood, the sacrificial system that Moses wrote, developed so much later. Then, in 1975, the Ebla tablets were discovered, and nearly 20,000 written records dating 1,000 years before the time of Moses were found. Oops. (laughs) And some some of them contained evidence of the sacrificial system. Oops. There's going to be a lot more oops coming. Listen, God's word is true, loved ones. His word is so true. Believe it. There's proof from archaeology. There's consistency in God's word. Do you know God used 40 different authors over the span of 1,600 years to write his word? And yet it is unbelievably consistent with itself. The personalities and life experiences were so different. Many of them never knew each other. Yet what they wrote is remarkably consistent because the Holy Spirit bore them along, according to 1 Peter. Uh, Here's some of the backgrounds. Moses was a politician and a shepherd. Peter was a a, a fisherman. Amos was a herdsman. Joshua, a military general. Luke, a doctor. Solomon, a king. Matthew, a tax collector. Paul, a Pharisee and a tent maker. What about contradictions? What do you mean it's consistent, Josh? I, I always hear there's contradictions. The next time somebody comes to you and says, there's so many contradictions in the Bible, you know what your response needs to be? Name one. And you know what they'll do? Uh, um, well, you know, like there's numbers and things about numbers that are different. And, or or like, the, like, you know, in the Old Testament, it's like an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But then Jesus says, turn, turn the other cheek. Well, is that, a, is that a contradiction? Contradictions can't be resolved. That's, an, that's just the message, Jesus clarifying it over time and, and him revealing it over time in redemptive history. Or how about, um, how about numbers? They might look at this example, one that, that often will come up. You, you probably find stuff written about it online. Uh, people will say in Mark and in Luke, it says there were two blind men healed in Jericho. But when I read Matthew, Matthew says there was only one blind man healed at Jericho. That's a contradiction. Hold on. Is it a contradiction? Define a contradiction. What's a contradiction? A contradiction is when separate accounts of the same incident cannot be reconciled. If two blind people were healed... And one of the writers chooses to only focus on one of the accounts. Is that a contradiction? No, not at all. Beyond that, the Gospel of John, we're told that the books of all the world couldn't contain everything Jesus did. So maybe there were multiple men healed in Jericho on multiple accounts. One time he healed two. Maybe one time he healed one. We don't know. But they might be describing completely different events. That doesn't make it a contradiction, right? Right? The reality is that these supposed contradictions, we could go through a whole list of them. Um, Everyone has a reasonable explanation that can be resolved. And most of those explanations have been around for hundreds of years. Don't buy into the fact that there's contradictions. Uh, Psalm 119.160 says, The sum of your word is truth. Every one of your righteous rules endures forever. The sum of God's word is truth. Fulfilled prophecy is another great evidence to me. Um, 
Hundreds of years before Jesus comes on the scene, there's prophecies of his birth. Isaiah 9 and of his life. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says the promised one would be born as a child and would establish an eternal kingdom. Isaiah 7, 14, the promised one would be born of a virgin. Psalm 72, the promised one, Jesus would be worshipped by shepherds and kings who would bring gifts of gold to him. Hmm. Micah 5 says the promised one would be born in Bethlehem. Did you choose where you were born? (laughs) Jesus did. He fulfilled all of these prophecies. There's 61 major prophecies about the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, all all fulfilled in the New Testament. Uh, Some statisticians, I've shared this with you before, but uh, they, they calculated the probability of not all 61, but just eight of those being fulfilled. Do you know what the probability is? One in 10 to the 17th power. One in uh, 10 with 17 zeros after it. That's 100,000 trillion. One in 100,000 trillion. That'd be a good payoff in Vegas, wouldn't it? So you get that one right? It's unbelievable. Just to demonstrate it, you cover the whole state of Texas, which is about eight times the size of Indiana, in two feet deep of silver dollars. And I go mark one with a red X on the back, throw it in the pile, mix it up. And then I send you in blindfolded in a helicopter. You can fly around anywhere you want. And at any moment, you can reach down and pick up one silver dollar. And you happen to pick up the one that I marked the X on. That's one in 100,000 trillion. That's just eight. That Jesus fulfilled of 61. Fulfilled prophecy is an unbelievable evidence, let alone experiential evidence. The word of God is living and active, the writer of Hebrews says, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Friends, the word of God we have is reliable. Amen? Now, I wish I had about two hours to keep going because I could. But I won't. The authority of Scripture. Let's get on to the second one. The authority of Scripture. Here's a definition for you. The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are, God, are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. I think that's a great definition of the authority of Scripture. We, we, I, just, I just laid it out for you that it's reliable. You've got to make a choice. Do you believe it? And I believe it has authority. We believe as a church, God's word has authority. And, and if, if that's true, if, they are, are, if, if that's true, if there are God's words, then to disbelieve any of it or to discount any of it is to disbelieve God himself. They are his words. His words. The Bible makes claims about itself as being God's word. Peter makes it clear that scripture then is our final authority. No human, not human plans, not human interpretation, not false teachers who ignore the Bible's authority, but God's word is our final authority. Again, if it's Jesus church, he's in charge. We got to pay attention to his word. His word is our authority. Peter writes this in second Peter uh, chapter one, starting in verse 13. Uh, This is a guy who his life is about over And he says, I think it right, as long as I'm in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Since I know that the putting off of my body, or some translations say the taking down of my tent, um, as as our Lord will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. So Peter's like, I'm about to die. So I will make every effort to make sure that my departure, after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Peter's living beyond his life, right? He's saying, um, I'm about to die, so I want to make sure that what stays behind after me is trustworthy and true, and I want to outlive my life. What a great testimony of a guy. 
He goes, for we did not follow. We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses, Peter says, of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. Peter's like, I was there at the transfiguration and I heard God's voice. He said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. I saw it. I heard it. I was there. I'm not telling you a myth. It's true. And, and he says, and we have the prophetic word, the word of God, more fully confirmed. He's like, everything that was written that I had studied my whole life was confirmed in that instance for me. And we have that more sure word, the word of prophecy, to which you would do well to pay attention as a light shining in a dark place. Peter's last words are like... <laughs> Read God's word. Pay attention to it. It's true. I've seen it with my own eyes. I've heard it with my own ears. It's true. It's true. This is Peter, the guy who cowered at a little girl when she approached him after when Jesus is led away to the cross and says, you're one of them. And to a young girl, he goes, no, I'm not. He was afraid. How does he get this much, uh, this much courage? Well, only by the resurrection of Jesus and knowing that these things are true. For no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, Peter writes. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God's word has authority, and it is true. It is his very words, loved ones. God wrote it all down for us. And there's power in the preaching of God's word. You know why I preach God's word? Because I'm not smart enough to come up with anything better. (laughs) I don't preach self-help as if somehow in myself or in yourself, you could fix everything in your life. I, I live by experience to tell you that's just, that'll never happen. I preach Jesus. We preach Jesus and his word that, that Jesus would change you and make you better. God's word has the power to change us. It's amazing to me. It's evidence to me when I hear, I, I can't tell you, literally, it's like week after week after week. I get an email. I get a text message. I get a phone call from people I've never met. Uh, sometimes you'll even listen to God's word on the internet through our website, and they'll, they'll say things like that. That what you you spoke right to me, and I'm sitting there thinking, no, I didn't. God did through me, and what a great encouragement that is to me. And uh, you know, some people they always preface it. I don't give you a big head. I, I don't get a big head. It gives me more courage to preach God's word because I know very well that's not my thought. I've got nothing for you other than Jesus and him crucified in his word. Amen? God wrote it all down for us, loved ones, and his word changes people. could go on and on. This last one, though, the sufficiency of Scripture. I want to end with this. Um, The sufficiency of Scripture. God wrote it all down. This means that Scripture contains all the words of God that he intended his people to have at each stage of redemptive history. And that it now contains everything we need God to tell us for salvation for trusting him perfectly, for obeying him perfectly. Second Timothy three sixteen and 17 is probably the preeminent passage in the New Testament on the authority of Scripture and the sufficiency and reliability of Scripture. Paul writes this to a young guy who's a pastor of the church in Ephesus. He says, How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings. Verse 15, sacred writings would have been this, this term in the Greek referred to the Old Testament. It's used 51 times in the New Testament every time it refers to uh, the Old Testament. You, you were equated with the, with the Scripture, Timothy, with, with the Old Testament. 
those scriptures, those writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. There's power in God's word to save you. He goes on, he says, all scripture then. Not, and by this term, this is a term that also is referred to not just God's word in the Old Testament, but some of the writings of Paul. So all scripture, not just Old Testament, but Old and New Testament, is breathed out by God. It's God's very word. And it's profitable for teaching. God's word, Isaiah says, does not return void, ever. My words return void all the time. God's word does not. It's, it's good for reproof, for correcting those who would believe wrongly or would say things wrongly that are opposed to God, false teachers. It's good for correction for those of us who are following Jesus and we sin and we mess up and God's word comes along. You ever read it? And, or maybe you hear it preached or you hear it taught and you just feel like this twist in your gut. Um, that's because God's word is profitable for correction. And for training in righteousness to make us more like Jesus. You become like the people you hang out with, is what I'd always tell high school students when I was a youth pastor. Do you know that? You become like the people you hang out with. Do you hang out with God, hearing from his word, hearing his words to you? It's, it's, it's faithful for training you in righteousness. That the man of God, that man of God term is just a term from the Old Testament that means servant, might be complete, equipped for every good work. Friends, God's word is sufficient for us. It's all we need to follow Jesus. I want to end uh, with, with one last thing, a couple quick warnings, and then uh, we're going to uh, take offering. We're going to sing, call it a morning. But one question that comes up when it, it comes to the sufficiency of God's word is, well, what about uh, when Paul, I think in Romans 10 and in Ephesians, he talks about being led and in Galatians being led by the spirit. What about that? You know, what, what about, does, does God's spirit lead us subjectively somehow apart from God's word. And I don't know about apart from God's word, but with God's word, I'd say, yeah, the spirit can lead us all subjectively and he can make an impression on your heart to serve him or to do something that's honoring to him. But a, but a couple warnings with that. The first warning is this, that when the spirit leads, the spirit always honors Jesus Christ. And it's never, he's never going to contradict what he's written in his word. He's not going to tell you to go steal a Snickers because you're hungry. Because he said, don't steal, right? I mean, he, he's not going to contradict his word, and he's not going to not honor Jesus. John tells us that we know the Spirit is truth because uh, we need to test the spirits and discern the spirits and discern those things. Is it really the Holy Spirit, or is it another spirit, or is it the pizza I ate last night? And, and what is it that's going on that's driving me to do this? Test the spirits because the Spirit of God is the only one that honors the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything that the Spirit does honors Jesus, right? So, you feel led by the Spirit? Well, first test it. Does it honor his word? Does it honor Jesus? The second thing to pay attention to then, uh, after, after you test it, is, um, is be sure if you, if you obey it and you go forward, you make that decision, does it honor Jesus? Is it profitable? Then make a decision. Okay, I'm going to follow. But don't write it down in the back of your Bible and add it on to Revelation for everyone else. You know what I'm saying? Just because the Spirit would lead you in some way subjectively doesn't mean that it's for everybody. Uh, let me give you just a couple quick examples. First off, God's Word is our final authority, so test it according to that. But if the Spirit would lead you maybe uh, in the education of your children, 
Maybe uh, he'd lead you to homeschool. Maybe he'd lead you to, to put him in a private school. Or as Hannah and I talked, we feel like we'll probably, uh, at this time anyway, when Charlie gets that age, put him in public school. That's just a conviction of our hearts. That's where we believe the Lord's leading us. Now, is that to say everybody should do that and put their kids in public school? No. And I would be foolish to stand here and say that. Or that everybody should put their kids in, in private school or homeschool. No, that'd be foolish for me to say that. Now, if the Lord leads you there, good. Follow him. Love him. But don't project his leading for you onto everyone else if, if neither of them uh, are, are forbidden in God's word. See, there was this saying in uh, the early free church um, and it goes like this. I don't know if I'll get it right. Varskar discurvit. Don't forget that. We're done. No, I'm just kidding. It, it means this. It means, it means where stands it written? Where stands it written? Is it written? It was in, in Norwegian is it, or Swedish. Is it written in God's word? If it's not written in his word, I'm not going to be bound by that. Now, God might lead my conscience to go do something else or, or not something else in contrary to that, but to... To go be a missionary like, like Doug or to, you know, whatever. But that doesn't mean that's for everybody. If it's not written in his word, we're not all bound by it. Does that make sense? You're like, that sounds wishy-washy, Josh. Actually, it's very biblical. Read Romans chapter 14. All right. I'm rambling. I could keep, I could, I'm telling you, I could go for two more hours. Anybody want to? A couple of you. The rest of you are like, I got to eat, man. I'm not going to make it. Here's the point, friends. God wrote it all down. He wrote it all down. And you can trust in the reliability of the copy of God's word that you have and that I preach from. You can. It's reliable. You may not understand all the details, but you've experienced it to be true. And I'm telling you, it is true. Internal, external evidence all over the place. It is reliable. Two, it's authoritative. God's word is our final authority. This is Jesus' church, so we follow Jesus' words, and we preach Jesus' words. Amen? Amen? I said a few weeks ago, if I quit preaching the Bible, fire me on Monday. I, I found out from somebody, somebody out here chimed up in the, right after I said that, we'll fire you on Sunday. <laughs> good. Good. Um, and then third, uh, the sufficiency of God's word. If there's things God's word doesn't mention, God didn't make a mistake. He gives freedom maybe in those things. Or maybe it's just something we don't need to know. We don't need to concern ourselves with. Trust his word. So in that, let me just end with this. From our statement of faith. If God's word is really God's word, then we have three responses to it. Number one, we need to believe it in all that it teaches. We need to believe it in all that it teaches. Do you believe his word? Two, we need to obey it. In all that it requires. Not more than it requires. That's legalism. That's religion. But all that it does require, we need to obey. And repent when we don't. And then finally, we need to trust it for everything it promises. Because God's made a lot of fantastic promises. And last check, he has never reneged on one of them. He keeps all of his promises. But here's the thing. In order for you to do this, guess what has to happen? You've got to read God's word. If you agree with all this, you're like, yeah, woo, here we go. And then your Bible just collects dust all week. Who cares? Honestly, who cares? 
The words of your creator are written down for you. Read them. He loves you. It's life-changing. Let me pray. We'll sing and we'll call it a morning. Father, thanks for Jesus. Thanks for your sure word to us in the text and um, all of your promises that we can trust them to be true. Lord, I pray for myself. I pray for each of us that we would never uh, be afraid or back down from what your word teaches uh, in fear that somehow um, we don't have a reliable copy. We do. We do. Or in fear that somehow it, it isn't authoritative just because we might hear a culture that is rebelling against you and turning from you on every, every opportunity. Your word is true and it is our authority. And not because... Uh, you're a God who, who seeks to squelch fun or, or lay out a bunch of rules. Lord, when you say don't in your word, what you're really saying is don't hurt yourself. You're like a good dad who tells his son not to touch the hot stove. You're saying if you do that, that's going to hurt. Obey my word. And then, Lord, your word is sufficient for us. For everything in all matters of life and practice, help us to trust it. To believe all that it teaches, to obey all it requires, and to trust all that it promises. Lord, we love you. Remind us to read your word this week because you love us and you've revealed yourself to us in it. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.